Weekly Signals. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, our show is about identity theft. And we're going to do something a little bit differently tonight because I have my new book, The Complete Idiot Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. You're going to ask me questions about the book. How about that? Okay. Well, I know you read the book. <laughs> you read it on the airplane. I did read the book, yes. Yeah, there was absolutely nothing to do on that airplane coming back from Washington, D.C., so you had to read the book. Yep. So that's great. So you're a perfect person to interview me about this book. I so, didn't even have a deck of cards. No. So what do you want to ask me? Let's get going. All right. So, uh, well, you've written other books on ID theft. So what prompted you to write one more? Well, I'll tell you what happened. I got a call from a literary agent, and she told me that there weren't a lot of books out on how to recover from identity theft. I had my book, From Victim to Victor, the compl- and that book, unfortunately, didn't have a lot of the newest types of identity theft in it, things like cyber identity theft and medical identity theft. So she asked me if I would do this, and I said, you know, it is about time to include all the newest trends and nuances and things that you can do, the, all the tricks that you can do to protect yourself from happening again or to prevent it in the future. Okay, well, <clears throat> just for clarification, uh, what exactly is identity theft, and uh, how, how does somebody uh, take your identity? Well, that those are two really great questions, so we're going to split them up. First of all, What is identity theft? It's the unauthorized use of some personal identifiers of yours, and that could be anything from your name and social security number to bank account numbers to even your face, even a picture of you, or even your email address, and to use it for some unauthorized purpose. In other words, they get that information and they use it for an illegal purpose. And and then your second question was, well, how can they use it, right? So well, yeah, how well how can they take it? How can they take it? Well, I guess that's another Where question. Where use it? Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's there's two different questions. How can they take it? Well, they can take it online in many different ways. When you're social networking and people see information about you, they can put that information together in profile and pretend to be you offline or online. 
Um, they can steal it with spyware. They can get it in a security breach from some company that had a security breach like your bank or some other information. Un- some other entity that has your information like the Veterans Association or the IRS or even some of the credit bureaus if they have a security breach. So it can happen online and then of course it can happen offline. Somebody can burglarize your car and you left information or your uh, wallet is stolen or maybe your Blackberry or some other PDA is stolen. Or your laptop is stolen when you put it on the the conveyor belt at the airport and you haven't encrypted those files. Anywhere where you have sensitive information about you, that can be stolen or that can be, you know, ripped off from you without you even knowing it. Or just think about this, you know, how all the places that have your social security number, your doctor's office, your dentist's office, if you have a lawyer, uh, the real, real estate people, the your bank, um, your mortgage company, so many different places have that sensitive data. And, you know, there's an interesting statistic here that in Orange County, California, where we live, 60 to 70% of the cases that are prosecuted in identity theft all happen from dirty insiders. That means unscrupulous employees. So think about that. If you have um, for example, you work at a company and your personnel file is not locked up safely or somebody has access to it, they can use it to steal your identity or to st- sell to someone else to, to take your identity. Or if you have a whole profile in your bank, I think if some of you have listened to our interview with Ron Hemphill, who is a former identity thief, he talked about how he would give money to managers of banks to get the profiles of all of the top people who have, uh, let's say, credit scores of 780 or more, and then, then he'd get their data and all of not only their credit data, but also information about their checking accounts, their bank accounts, their investment accounts, their college accounts. So there's myriad ways that you can get this information. And what's scary is there's so many ways that you can utilize that information too. And so, like, for in my my new book, we talk about all the different types of identity theft, whether it's credit card fraud or loan fraud or mortgage fraud, or we talk about cyber identity theft, or we talk about medical identity theft, which is a newer trend that's happening. Um, There's anything that you can do with your own identity, your identity thief can also do. So you... They become a clone of you. And right now, in, in this information society, we that your information is worth more than the money in your bank. And if you think about all the things that someone could do with what you could do with your own identity, the sky's the limit. Well, uh, maybe you could tell us, uh, how do you know your victim unless you get a bill in the mail or credit card company gets a hold of you? What are some telltale signs? Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, one of the things you want to make sure that you do is to be proactive. And to be proactive, I mean to go ahead and get your credit reports at least once a year. Actually, you can get all three credit reports from the three credit bureaus at annualcreditreport.com. When you go there, you can get your Equifax, your Experian, or your TransUnion right there online, or they give you a toll-free number that you can call as well to get that. 
And you need to scrutinize those credit reports very carefully to see, is there anything in the credit header information that isn't you? For example, is there a social security number that is up there that is close to yours but not quite yours? Are there names on there that are supposedly your alias names or other names that you use that aren't your names? Are the addresses right? Are there addresses on there that that have never been your address? And then, of course, look to see if there are accounts on your credit report that you don't have open, that you never applied for. Then there's the sneaky place that you must look for. You must look at the hard pulls. That means the inquiry section. And there's an inquiry section that states these companies got your credit report for the purpose of issuing you credit. Now, if you have not applied for a Chase card or if you haven't applied for a certain loan and that is appearing on that section, you need to call them right away. There should be a telephone number also right next to the name of the company. Call and say, why did you pull my credit report? And if if they tell you, well, you applied for credit, then you need to tell them right then and there, I never applied for credit need to get all the information about that account, who applied for credit, and you'll need to get information to write to those people and tell them to absolutely not issue credit and to give you all documentation of the fraudulent application. There's another section of your credit report that is called the soft pull section, and those is a section that says these Um, These companies reviewed your credit report because you have an established relationship with them. Well, look at that section because if you don't have an established relationship with with those companies, you need to be able to contact them and say, why did you review my credit report? I don't have any credit outstanding with you. I don't have an account with you. I don't have a loan with you. And What's very, very strange about that section is if someone has gotten a business credit card in your name, that section will show that that company is reviewing your account, but it won't show up as an actual account on your credit report. And the reason why only personal credit cards appear on your credit report. So let's say you have a business account. That won't appear on your credit report unless it goes into collections or if there's an account review. So these really savvy fraudsters are learning to apply for business credit accounts in your name. I had a gentleman who worked for a hospital and he didn't have his own account, his own business account, and he didn't have a business, yet there was a fraudster who had applied for business accounts in his name and had gotten business credit cards and stole thousands of dollars in his name, and it didn't appear in his credit report except when it went to collections. So that's a really important place to look as well. So that's about looking at your credit report. Then, like you said, Lloyd, how do you know unless somebody calls you from a collection agency or you get a call and say, did you apply for this account? It's a good idea to do some other things, to, to look at your um, but at your background check. And you can go to places like choicepoint.com and you can do your own background check. In fact, you can go to choicetrust.com <clears throat> and at choicetrust.com you can get some free information. In other words, you can get your free 
employment report. That means your employment history. And look at that. You can get it right online at choicetrust.com. And when you look at that, you can see if there is any employer, you know, if there was any employer that you did not have. And that would be a, a, a sure red flag for you. Another thing you can do is you can look at your clue history, which is your insurance history. You can get that for free as well at choicetrust.com. And when you get that, if there are, um, if there's insurance that was, uh, if there are insurance claims that you didn't make, that's another indicator. So that's really important. Also at choicetrust.com, you can get your free public record search. And that is something that you can get online as well, or you can write away for it. And you can see if there's public records, for example, maybe the person applied for a certain license, like a pilot's license or a a sea captain's license in your name. So that would be a way for you to look. So that's very important that you go to choicetrust.com. You can get your free auto or homeowners. Another thing is your free tenant history. So again, you can see if someone has applied for apartments and has gotten apartments in your name. Then for medical identity theft, you can go to the Medical Information Bureau, go to MIB.com, and you can see if there were health insurance claims in your name. Now that won't tell you all of the medical identity theft because not all of the carriers belong to this, but it, it will be a start to tell you. So there's lots of ways that you can start looking and seeing what might be out there about you that is not really you. You know, when I, uh, when I read your book, I thought the format was, was uh, really easy to use. When, you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, you know, the Complete Idiot Guides by Penguin and Alpha Books are really great. I mean, I had to follow a certain format, but I'll tell you, it really made a lot of sense, and everybody has told me that it's very easy to follow. So I divided the book into several parts, and that really, I think, helped people to find things easily. Like the part one is first steps, and this tells you what every identity theft victim needs to do. It's just an overview. Any kind of identity theft, it gets you started. Then the second part is called Restore Your Finances. And this this I offer techniques to clear your name with creditors, lenders, banks, insurance companies, and other kind of credit issuers. Then part three is called The Innocence in Betrayals. And this tells you how to handle identity theft when your children or the deceased are victims or when friends or relatives take your identity. Because believe it or not, about 12% of identity theft is committed by friends or family and medical identity theft it's even higher so that's that's a biggie lately then part four is called square away the bureaucracies and and in this part i help you to deal with the government agencies your employer or medical providers so this is several chapters in there that you know really focus in on those tough ones that you can't really find in your credit reports And then part five tells you when the going gets really tough. And that's for those who find themselves a subject of criminal investigations or a lawsuit or impersonation by cyber identity theft, like, you know, when it's online or even terrorists. 
And there's also a chapter on what to do when the process doesn't work so smoothly and what else you should do to protect yourself. And throughout the book, I have little, you know, step-by-step what to do to protect yourself and little uh, information. They have they have little uh, formats that you use to give extra uh tips and things to help yourself like one is called uh, information is power and this is useful bits of information that make the recovery process really easy then identity crisis is another little things on the slide that let you know um, what to look out for in terms of potential problems that so you can get ahead of them before they even happen and that even tells you what to do to prevent these kinds of things. Then I have legal ling, um, lingo, legal lingo, legal lingo. <laughs> that's a hard. That's hard. <laughs> almost as hard to say as privacy piracy. Almost. And these, you know, these explain key terms that you're also going to find in Appendix A and in the glossary. But it really helps you. And then hidden agenda. These are really important pieces of information about identity theft to protect yourself and recovery that most people don't even know about. So that's kind of how I put it together. And um, there's quite a few chapters. There's 19 chapters within all those five parts, but it really tells you everything that you need to know about how to protect yourself and what to do when it happens to you. And there isn't really any other book out there like this, especially written by an attorney that has dealt with us. You know, for years I've been helping victims of identity theft. Right. And, uh, you know, when I read it, I was I was impressed by the fact that uh, it's easy to use and you can actually, you don't have to read the whole book. You can just go to the part that pertains to you to find out uh, what you have to do. Right, Although right. It is all interesting, but, I mean, uh, you, there's so many different kinds of identity theft. You actually, It's spelled out for each, you know. Exactly, because sometimes line. it might just be a cell phone account or gasoline credit cards or somebody scammed you in employment. You know, we're seeing a lot, unfortunately, undocumented uh, foreigners that use a social security number of people to work because you have to show a social security number. So we have a lot of people who have, you know, scammed employers that way, too, with identity theft. So, you know, we... A government benefits fraud, somebody can get workers' comp in your name. I mean, you name it, they can do it. So, you know, you have to know all the ins and outs because, unfortunately, the uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which deals with credit card fraud and, and credit fraud, doesn't cover all of the different types of identity theft. It doesn't give you protocol for everything. So that's what this is about. All right. So well, you say in the book that Understanding your rights is crucial because many, it's hard to believe that creditors, the banks, law enforcement agencies don't even know the law. So what are some of your most uh, important rights as a victim and how do you, how do you go about uh, securing those rights? Oh, that is so such an important question, Lloyd, because what happens is a lot of the law enforcement agencies, for example, will tell you, well, you know, if, if it's an identity theft and they think it's a family member, they're going to say, this is a civil matter, I'm not going to give you a police report. Or maybe they think, well, look, we have so many of these on our desk, we just can't deal with it. You must have an identity theft report. So you must tell law enforcement, whether it's the sheriff's department or your police department that you live in locally, you must tell them, look, even if the fraud was committed in New York and I live in California 
or vice versa. It doesn't matter. You need to get an identity theft report by some law enforcement agency in your own jurisdiction where you live. So let's say law, you know, your local law enforcement agency won't take a report. And, and let me just say this. The reason they may not take a report is because if they take a, a law enforcement report, they feel that they have to investigate once you have a report. And these kinds of cases are labor intensive and they just don't want to do it. So either you tell them if you're in California, you tell them, look, I must have a report under uh, penal code section 530.5 and you tell them what it is or if it's uh, some other jurisdiction you can also tell them under the fair credit reporting act i must have a law enforcement report and by the way let's say you don't want to go to your local law enforcement agency you if if the identity theft included somebody sending out credit cards through the mails you can go to your local lo- postal um inspector and you can look them up in the yellow pages or right online and call the local postal inspector go to your post office and talk to them and you can get a report from them or if someone got a driver's license in your name you can go to the dmv and get a report and so you can even go to the fbi or the secret service or the social security administration if your social security number was taken In reality, you shouldn't expect that they're going to really investigate what you need that social security, what you need that identity theft report is so that you can copy that report and send it to any company that has issued a fraud account. That's really, really important. So you've got to tell law enforcement, look, I don't expect you to have to investigate. I'll do everything and I'll give you everything that I learn, but I don't expect you to have to investigate this. So please just give me an informational report. So that's what you have to do with law enforcement agencies because they don't always know what the right what your rights are. But beyond that, yeah, banks sometimes don't either. You get these fraud departments. Let's say that X bank issued a fraud account to your evil twin and you tell them it wasn't me. And they tell you, well, I'm sorry, you know, it looks like your signature and it looks like you and this application looks like you. So we're not going to give it in. You know, we're not going to give in and we're not going to give you copies of anything because you don't have any rights to it. Well, that's not the case. The fraud department really actually gets motivated to collect money from you. So they are they don't have any incentive to really help you as a victim. Sometimes they do, but unfortunately they don't, oftentimes. So what you need to do is you need to know your rights, and we have your rights explained in the book, but this is which an important right that you have. As a victim, once you get an identity theft report from the police department or any local law enforcement agency or a federal agency, and you complete an affidavit that you get off the FTC, the uh, the Federal Trade Commission's website at ftc.gov slash ID theft. You fill out that affidavit with some information about the fraud, and you also get a copy of your driver's license and a utility bill. And you have a right to get all documentation of the fraud. That means you have a right to get any applications, any notes from the uh, fraud department, you have a right to get P 
pictures if they have a, a picture of somebody at an ATM machine or at the bank. If they have any video surveillance, you have a right to all documentation of the fraud and you have a right to get it free within 30 days under Fair Credit Reporting Act 609E. So most of them, most of the companies don't even know it, but if you write that to them, they will have to comply with what you have. So you have to be more savvy than they are so that you can get your rights, so that you can get the recovery and get your life back. Uh, so you say you can get copies of that stuff within 30 days. Um, so 30 days from, from when? when you from find the, that's a good point. 30 days from when you send the letter. So when you send the letter, you must send it return receipt requested to the company that issued the fraud account. Okay, It could be a bank. It could be... Um, an online account that was set up. It could be anything. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, Lloyd, because it's also important that there's another aspect of the federal law that's great, and that is you can actually require that any company that issued the fraud account also send copies of whatever you get to the law enforcement agency that made the report. So if you're in Orange County and it's the Orange County Sheriff's Department or the New York Police Department, you can have all that same information sent for free copies to the detective or the investigator that took the police report. So you always want to make sure that you get um, a law enforcement report and get the name of the investigator, even if they're not going to investigate whoever it is in the economic crime unit or the high-tech crime unit. So yeah, that's, that's what you need to do, 30 days from the date that you send the letter. All right. Say you you find out that you're uh, a victim of ID theft or credit card fraud or something. What should you do first? Well, that's a good question. And it depends on what kind of fraud. If you're the victim of financial identity theft, the first thing you're going to do, if it's a credit card company and somebody, you know, uh, calls you and it's a collection, you're going to tell them this is fraud. You need to close the account immediately. The next thing you need to do is call up the three credit bureaus. There's a uh, fraud number for each of the credit bureaus, and I can get that number for you in a, in a minute here. But you call up the fraud number for the three credit bureaus, which are TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax. And I'm just going to find that number for you in a second here. But once you call those three telephone numbers, you will not get a real human. You are only going to get a voice prompt. And here you are, the victim of identity theft, and you hate to do it. And by the way, here, here's the numbers. Equifax, to report fraud, you're going to call 800-525-6285. Or you can go online and you can report it online as well. Experian, the fraud number is 888-397-3742. And for TransUnion, it's 800-680-7289. And you can go online and you can report the fraud. But what you're going to want to do 
I think it's best to do it by phone, to be honest with you, because you are going to give them a... You have to give them your social security number. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to give your social security number. You have to give your address. And you you want to tell them when you're doing these voice prompts, you want to give them your cell phone number. Because what happens is, is they're going to put an alert on your credit report that says... I'm the victim of identity theft or my identity may have been compromised and do not issue credit without calling me first at this number. And then the best thing to do is to give your cell phone number. And the reason why is if you're out shopping and you want to get some credit or there is something going on, you want them to call you immediately. If you have to wait till you get home, if you've been at work all day, then you aren't going to be able to say that's a fraudulent rec- uh, account. I don't want you to issue that. So it's important that they call you first on the cell phone number and you tell them, yes, this is an account that I really applied for, or no, it's not an account that I didn't, I did not apply for it. Also, if you're really very, very worried and you think that there's already a ton of fraud that's been out there in your name and financial fraud, you can actually put on a security freeze. And the security freeze will lock up your credit so even you can't get credit without giving a password. You can go online to transunion.com or experian.com or equifax.com and you can set up a security freeze. If you're a victim of identity theft, it is free. And this is how it works. You let them know you want to put a freeze on your account so that no new creditors can issue credit without you releasing a password to the credit bureaus. Now, that doesn't mean that your own creditors can't review your credit report, and it doesn't mean that you can't review it. It just means that any potential new creditor cannot see the credit report. So that really locks it up tight. But hopefully the fraud alert is going to be enough so that you aren't precluded from getting credit. So that's that's a good start. You know, when you find stuff on your uh, credit report that's fraudulent or you already talked about talking to them about it, and what are the chances that they'll take this, take it off? And how long is it, does it really take to? That's a really, really good, really good point because you want to get that fraud off as soon as possible. So let me explain what happens. When you put the fraud alert on your credit report, then the credit bureaus write you a letter and tell you your rights, and they say you have a right to a free report. Get that. In fact, as a victim of identity theft, you get two free reports in the in the twelve month period that you've been a victim. California, you get one a month. Okay, you're entitled to one a month. In other states, you can get more as well. This is on top of the free credit report that you get at annualcreditreport.com. Okay, so not, not to be confused by the yeah the jingle on TV. Yeah, don't about, even say the jingle; they'll get them all confused. Right. Okay. Right. So. The, you, you asked me a really good question, Lloyd, about, all right, so how do I get this stuff off my credit report? Okay, this is very, very important. You have a kind of a two-step process. You see all these credit cards, let's say, or loans or student loans or collection accounts on your credit report. The first thing you do actually is you have to write to the credit bureaus first even before you write to the credit card companies. And this is the reason why. 
Under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you notify the credit bureaus, they notify the creditors, and then that that secures you at least for your rights to sue the creditor later. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't contact the creditors, which you must do anyway, but always contact the credit reporting agencies first. So you see this list on your credit report. You see all these fraudulent accounts and loans and all this mortgages, et cetera. On your credit report, you have to write a letter to each of the credit bureaus and say to them, these are the fraudulent items on my credit report. So you go through and you say, whatever it is, the, the Chase account, an account number, the loan, the student loan, whatever it is, you enumerate line by line what is fraudulent. So it's a good idea to circle everything on your credit report that is, that is not you, that's fraudulent. And that would include, remember we talked about inquiries, that would include inquiries. In other words, if someone applied for a, a Wells Fargo loan and you never applied for that, circle that and you're going to uh, annotate that in your letter as well. Also in the credit information about your credit header information, about your name, address, telephone number, your spouse, your employer, if there's anything on there that's fraudulent, let's say it's, it says you have a husband that you never even, you're not even, never been married. So that could be your fraudster who's taking credit in your name. So you need to even enumerate for the credit bureaus anything on that credit report that's fraudulent, names, social security numbers, addresses, um, inquiries section, everything. And you send that return receipt requested to the three credit bureaus. Now, here's something. These guys... These credit bureaus are competitors. So the, the very big companies like American Express and certain and Chase Card, a Bank of America, they're going to appear on all three. So that you can repeat. But for the smaller companies, the certain lenders, they don't report to all three. So each credit card company has a choice of who they want to report to. So you must get all three credit reports, look at them with a fine-tooth comb, and correct them. After you've done that, then you must also write to the creditors. And if there's a Wells Fargo account or a Chase account or anything that is not yours, you must contact them. If the address is not on the credit report, you are entitled to get the addresses from the credit bureaus as well. So hopefully they'll be on there. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Sometimes the phone number is on there, sometimes it's not. Call first, get the phone number, get somebody to talk to, get to the fraud department, tell them it's fraud, make a report. So you need to actually have these, you know, this two-pronged approach, the credit bureaus first and then the credit reporting agencies. Now that's for financial fraud that appears on your credit report. But you know, Lloyd, there's a lot of financial fraud that doesn't appear on your credit report. Did you know that? Did I? <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah, you Yeah, I know. guess I did. You did because you read the book, right? That's right. So let's talk about some of the, the financial fraud that doesn't appear on your credit report. Think about it. If you're listening and driving right now and you have a debit card in your wallet, you have dynamite in your wallet. That is a very dangerous card. That card can be used without a PIN online 
by fax, by phone, and all the money is stolen out of your account in a heartbeat because it's really an instant check. It's an electronic check. So if you have any kind of bank fraud, all right, it's not a mortgage, it's not a loan, it's not credit extended, but it's actual bank fraud. That means checks, debit cards, electronic transfers, all of those will not appear on your credit report. But they will, but the money will be gone. So how will you know? How will you know if you're the victim of debit card fraud or electronic funds transfer? You're going to know if you do online banking. And some people think online banking is dangerous. But what about you, Lloyd? What do you think? I do it every month. And, right. But what do we do to protect ourselves from on, online banking? There's certain things that we do to protect ourselves. And that is we make sure that we never would use um, a, a wireless, you know, we'd never use our laptop to do online banking. We'll do it from home where we've got, no, well, you use your laptop, but it's it's in the house and it's, you've yeah, got, we have a router in the we house. We have a router, a hardwire. Yeah. And we have lots of security. We have anti-spyware and we've got. Right. I, I just undo the banking at a, you know, cafe, you right. know, like a Starbucks or something. Never, ever. Or or at the airport, right. you know, someplace where it's not protected. Wi-Fi. Right. Or at a Marriott. We would never do banking like that. But it's really important also that when you're doing your online banking, it's remember, you need to have um, a password. But first of all, a username that's not your name, a password that's 12 numbers and letters all mixed up. And like we said, the router and do it in a place where no one can see what you're doing. And then don't give, you know, you're going to initiate the online banking to pay your vendors from your account. And what I mean by that is, is this, your bank already knows your credit, your uh, account number and your routing number. They already know that that's they're your bank. All right. But does um, does your Visa account know your bank number? No. Does um, San Diego Gas and Electric or New York Gas and Electric, do they know? No. So you always want to Only go- if you send them a check. Huh? Right, if you send them a check, which you don't want to do. So if you're going to do online banking, you're going to initiate all those payments <clears throat> yourself from your own bank. So you can set up as a payee, everyone, even- if you have a gardener or anyone that you pay even um, that that isn't a big bank or a big company, you can pay them. You can pay Macy's, you can pay American Express, Visa, any card you want, and you can set it up to pay on the day. Let's say one is due on the 15th, so you set that to pay like the 13th, or one is due on the 20th, you set that to pay on the 18th. So you can set that up in the beginning of the month whenever you want to make a payment and and then you don't have to worry about it. Now, some people give their account number to everyone that they deal with, their T-Mobile or their AT&T or their gas card, anyone. You should not give your account number and your routing number because employees have access to that and they can start up electronic funds transfer. So that's very, very dangerous. And a lot of people do it and don't even think about it. Now, another thing you can do that's safe is to use 
a credit card to make a lot of payments. So if you have monthly payments to Cox, for example, for your cable, or you have payments to to pay your cell phone account, use a credit card, not a debit card, and not one of these electronic transfers that you allow them to have your account number and your routing number. So this, we're talking about things that are in my new book, The Complete Idiot Guide to Recovering from from Identity Theft, and that's in all the bookstores and online and everything. It's an alpha book. And, um, and you should... Oh, and by the way, I am interviewing Mari Frank, who's usually the host of this show, but today we're interrogating her for a change. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And yes, I am Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. But my sidekick is my engineer, Lloyd Beauchat, who's asking me questions. And I know he read the book because he sat next to me on the airplane as he read it. So this guy really read it, and we have it sitting here right in his hand. So you got any more questions right. for me? Sure. There's There's so many different kinds of ID theft. There's dangers everywhere, whether it's medical identity theft or social networking sites, you know, over the internet. You want to, you want to talk about one of those? Yeah. What about social networking sites like uh, Facebook and MySpace? And- yeah. And, you know, I know everybody, especially we're here on the campus and I know everybody has a Facebook account or MySpace or does online dating. And, you know, you don't really think about it, but uh, there's been all this brouhaha about these privacy settings And it's important that you look at the privacy settings. And, you know, a lot of these uh, these social networking sites have a very open, the the default is open for anybody to see. And we suggest that you you don't put things on there that are very sensitive, okay? For example, don't, if you put your birthday on there and where you live, then somebody could figure out your social security number, believe it or not. If they know your age and your exact birthday, they can figure out your social security number. Also, if you give your address on there, not only could you subject yourself to possible uh, stalking, cyber stalking, when someone knows all about you, but also physical stalking. So that's another danger. So we suggest that you're very careful that that you close, you know, uh, use the privacy settings and don't just accept friends and say, oh, I've got 350 friends on MySpace or, or, fr- or Facebook. Be very, very careful like that and don't put up sensitive data on there. And just think about it. If you're going to put up photos on there about on your Facebook or on MySpace that put you in a light that looked like you're just a party person. Other people can get into that site. It's not really secure and they could get that and you could maybe end up not getting a job. Or if you have too much information about you, someone can steal that information and create an identity. And I've had people call me who have been victims of identity theft from social networking sites. In fact, people have taken photos and said it was them and it really wasn't them. I even had a gentleman who called me He had his baby's picture up on one of these baby sites and someone had stolen that picture and created a website and said this is the the other person's baby, which was really pretty terrifying for him to stolen the identity of his baby. So just remember, when you go on these websites, just think about if someone else could utilize this information and put it together. 
don't put real sensitive information about you on there. People who are your friends from way past, you know, maybe 20 years ago that you find again or you make a new friend, you know, start talking to them on the phone. Don't put it up on the Internet and don't share that information on the Internet. But we were talking about all kinds of of identity theft. And one of the worst kinds of identity theft is criminal identity theft. And that's when someone steals your identity when they get stopped for for some kind of a, a crime, whether it's drugs or it could even be a DUI, it could be anything. And then your name gets into the arrest record. Now, what's interesting is the NCIC, which is the FBI database, is all based on fingerprints. So the good news is, is that your fingerprints will be different. But if someone is taking your identity in another state, another county, or even in your county, they're going to first actually file this arrest with, you know, um, with the police. The police are going to file a record and they're going to actually ask for your social security number and your driver's license and all that. And if someone else uses that about you, that's what's going to go into the court records. So the court records are going to be distinct from the FBI records that have your fingerprints. They're fingerprint based, but the but the actual records for criminal identity theft that you're going to see in the courts are going to be with your social. So unfortunately, it's going to be a huge challenge if there is an arrest record in your name and the person then uh, doesn't show up and there's a warrant for your arrest and then you're arrested and you have to go ahead and prove that it is not you. So one of the first things you're going to need to do is have your mugshot taken and have it compared with the other. Have your fingerprints taken and show that it wasn't the same as the other person. So that's that's a start. And then you have to go and unravel, not from starting with the police department and going through the court system and having all those changed. And you have to get a certificate of innocence and have the court records changed. And then you can go to the FBI and have those records changed as well. So um, I'm saying it quickly, but it is really a quagmire. But we explain step by step in this book and a whole chapter on, on the criminal identity theft. So with criminal identity theft, um, you're never going to know about it until a cop stops you or something. And Well, that's one way you'll find out. True. If <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, if you get stopped for speeding and all of a sudden you get arrested. But I, I have had victims who've been arrested in their own office. You know, a, a CEO of a company was arrested in his own office as cops come in, throw him down on the desk and handcuff him and say he's wanted for arrest. And what had happened was one of his neighbors had stolen his mail and assumed his identity and he was uh, arrested. He gave the other guy's name and, and that's what happened. Another way you may find out that you're a victim of criminal identity theft is when you apply for a job and, and you authorize a background check and the background check says that um, you want you were arrested for murder. And if you remember, I had a client I, yeah, like that. I remember that client. And actually, nobody stole his identity. The police officer just transposed some numbers. Right, but it was it was, it was a un- typo. It was an unintentional identity theft. It right? was a typo that ruined his life. Yeah, and then I had another victim that I helped who um, he didn't find out about it until he also couldn't get a job, and and someone 
he he actually had started out as a victim of financial identity theft and after the guy stole his financial identity theft and ruined his credit he thought oh well you know now i can commit burglaries and other things so that's when he found out that he was a victim of identity theft many after he had moved from new york to florida and he found out many years later when he couldn't get a job so that's another way. It's a good idea. One of the ways to find out if you are the victim of criminal identity theft and you don't want to find out by just getting arrested um, is it's a good idea to do your own background check. And there are many places you can do this, but you have to be careful because then there's some fraudulent websites online as well. But you can go to choicepoint.com and they're, at least they are reputable. They're part of LexisNexis and you can get a background check on yourself and see what is actually out there if there are any uh, criminal things out there. Now, if you are a victim of financial identity theft and you've made friends with your law enforcement agency, you can ask them to do a background check on you, a criminal background check. And many of the law enforcement agencies, um, when they know that they have a real victim of, of identity theft, they're willing to run an accurate report or, or one of the other Axiom or some other um, software that they have that will help them to look and see if there is any criminal identity theft. And, and I would ask your law enforcement agency if they'll run a background check on you and tell them first that you're a victim of fraud because usually when they find out that there is criminal background check, they w- a criminal uh, history, they will uh, look at you a little bit more cautiously and may not even believe you. So that's a really important thing to do too with criminal background check. So um, why don't you talk a little about a little bit about uh, medical ID theft and uh, how does that work? Okay, well, medical identity theft is is really insidious, and that is someone will use your your name and maybe your health insurance and use up your health insurance to the point where you cannot use it, and and. What's really scary about it, although they're doing it for to save money to to get health care that they're not entitled to, and obviously it's a financial crime, it's also another type of crime. And this is they will create a medical history that isn't yours. For example, if you have diabetes and they don't, that's one problem. If they have one, you have one blood type and they have another. Um, if you have um, certain allergies and they don't all these types of things this could be a life or death situation so medical identity theft is really quite frightening and with the cost of medical care we're finding quite a bit of medical identity theft in fact the Poneman Institute did a, a research study just recently this in 2010 and found that there were 1.25 million victims of medical identity theft and unfortunately, a lot of it is, not a lot, but a good percentage is family identity theft. Someone use it, knows that you have health insurance in the family and they don't have it and they use it. And sometimes they use it medical, um, they'll use your medical insurance because they don't have it. And you may not know about it or maybe you do and you look the other way. So that could be very, very, very dangerous and people need to think about that, what they need to do. Now, one of the real problems with medical identity theft is that it's very hard to change the records, okay? And that is 
a lot of the doctors and hospitals do not want to amend the records because they need to keep it for a period of time because they worry about malpractice. And if you go ahead and you're the victim of medical identity theft and you upfront tell a hospital, I'm the victim of identity theft and this person used my name and got an operation, they will not provide you the records because they'll say it's a privacy violation of HIPAA. For the fraudster. You're yes, violating yes, their, their yes. privacy. Yes. <laughs> so the best thing to do is first, when you find out that you're a victim of identity theft, don't tell them. Ask for a copy of the records first, which you're entitled to. And then when you get the records, then you tell them, this isn't me. This isn't my blood type. I am, you know, I'm not white. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Hispanic or whatever it is. And this is not me. You show how it's not you. You're, your height is different. Your eye color is different. But first, get the records. And then you ask to have those records changed. Now, I've been able to get victims to get their records changed. However, many people have not been able to do it. What they will do is they will add a, an, an amendment or an addendum to the file and say that this person is a victim of identity theft, and et cetera. Now, there was a real interesting case here in Orange County just about a month ago where a woman stole the identity of another woman and got credit to be able to get a breast enhancement. And now a lot of doctors are issuing credit themselves with these things like credit care, where you get two years to pay something off for medical procedure, you get to pay it off. And the doctor just basically issues you the credit with a third-party company. And the doctor is to verify your identity. They're the ones that are verifying your identity. Anyway, with this woman with breast enhancement, she had new breasts put in. But she she replaced some old ones, right? Some yeah, she had replaced old ones because sometimes, especially with silicon, you have to get new ones after about 10 years. Maybe they were leaking. So she went to a doctor to get them replaced. And when she did, she didn't come back for visits. And they thought that was really strange. And then she didn't make her monthly payments. So fortunately for the doctor, the doctor had kept the previously used silicon breast implants that had an idea. Because he was going to put them in another patient. No. Save a buck. No, he wasn't. (laughs) But anyway, it had the ID number on there. And the ID number then could be traced back to the real name of the person. So the real person had a different name than the name that the woman used later so that they were able to find her and she did get convicted. And so that was the good story. So implants have a VIN number just like your car. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like that? So anyway, she, she didn't think about that. She should have said, I want, I want those for, you know, for whatever reason, she should have just kept them herself and asked that they get, be given back to her, but apparently they were not given back to her. So medical identity theft, like I said, it, some of the real fallout from medical identity theft is, you know, someone uses up your insurance and then you can't get it, or you get some pre-existing condition that you can't get insurance or you end up getting sued or you end up with collection calls and, um, and you have to defend yourself and say, no, this isn't me. And you have a problem with getting the records. And then you also have a problem with correcting the records. Well, we're almost out of time here. Um, what, what do you think needs to happen? I mean, how, this is the, the fastest growing crime there is. 
and you know nobody seems to be helping with it congress or the financial institu- institutions what has to be done Mark? well you know what that i think that's a great question and i've been really aggravated about this since 1996 when i was a victim and i've testified in congress and this is this is the problem we have tons of new laws we have law enforcement laws we have you know penal code sections we've got the fair credit reporting act and guess what it's increased. Identity theft has increased to the highest number that we had last year, 2009, 11.5 million new victims. So we're talking about probably 50 million victims just since I've been a victim or more, probably even more. Wait a minute, what am I saying? Because there were about 10 a, a year since 1996. So how many is that, Lloyd? I'm not good at math. But we're talking about, you know, millions and millions of people. So why is it increased? It's increased because the companies that have been lax and casual about issuing credit or the doctors who haven't been careful about authenticating the person who they are or the governmental agencies who haven't been careful or they've had lax security with these security breaches. My belief is, is that if we allowed a private right of action, in other words, if you could file a lawsuit against a company for issuing credit to a fraudster when they didn't authenticate who he was, you would, it, I think there would be a, a huge difference because there would be so many lawsuits that people would be much more careful. And I think that's the problem. Right now, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you really cannot sue the companies that have issued credit to a fraudster. You really don't have that right. If they issue an account to a fraudster, even after you've had a fraud alert on your credit report, you have no right under the Fair Credit Reporting Act to sue. So I think one big, very big change would be if we could get Congress to allow for a private right of action for victims, I think you'd see a big change. And the other thing is this, California and some, some of the other states have passed great laws. We are very privacy conscious. In California, we have a constitutional right to privacy. So what has happened is a lot of the federal laws that don't allow private right of action have preempted. That means they've disallowed our laws to take precedent. Because so, the congress, congressmen are getting bought off by special interests. Well, I think that's part of it. And, I think, and I think that everybody has to be more accountable. But meanwhile, if you want to learn more about how to protect yourself and what to do and really recover without giving all your information to other companies, you might want to look at the Complete Idiot Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. I'm Mari Frank, and I'm the author. And you can go to identitytheft.org and find out more about what I've written. And you can also go, of course, to all of the bookstores and see more about it. Okay. Well, that's about it. Thanks, Mari. Okay. Thank you, and have a great day. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. 
I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are welcoming Sanford Otsuji, who is Chief Senior Chaplain with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And he's been with the department as a volunteer for 10 years. In his professional life, he is the executive director of the foundation Olive Crest, which provides homes and services for abused children. Thank you, Sandy, for joining us. Thank you, Mari, for having me. Why don't you tell us what the chaplain program at the Orange County Sheriff Department is really about? Well, first of all, the chaplain program started 23 years ago in Orange County and actually in San Clemente and has branched out throughout Orange County uh, with the Sheriff's Department. And the chaplains are primarily ministers who are ordained or they're licensed or commissioned and they supply spiritual help and partnership with the deputies as they right along with them and are called when they need it in the crisis situation. And what is your role as the senior chaplain? My role is to oversee the program, which has 25 chaplains that serve all of the cities in the Sheriff's Department's area, and that is throughout Orange County. We're going to talk more about this program and specifically what you all do as chaplains very soon in our next segment. So thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 